Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 161, King Conewolf's Rise in Power. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Wyatt, Jean-Luc, and Miranda for contributing already. Over on the members' feed right now, we're talking about why there were Viking raids. Like with most things from this period, there's a bit of debate on that subject. But it is pretty fun, and hopefully it will shed some light on why there are increased strikes along the coasts and rivers of Europe. Now, a quick update for you. About 40% of you have made the switch from the soon-to-be-defunct Amazon system and over to PayPal. Thank you so much to everyone who's moved over their membership already. And if you haven't done it yet, please head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and sign up using the new PayPal links before Amazon cancels out everything. Thanks a bunch. All right, let's get on with the show. While Offa was an effective leader in Mercia during his life, his dynastic purges were a disaster. Looking at what followed, it appears that he heavily targeted extended members of his own family. Now that placed his immediate family in a very good position to pursue power, and we did see a seamless transfer of power to his son, Egfrith, as well as the placement of his daughters in prestigious positions, both through marriage and also within the church, which was rapidly becoming an extension of royal power. And actually, the dynastic policies during Offa's reign were so effective that even Queen Chinnathrith, who was quite powerful while her husband was still alive, continued to wield considerable power in Mercia, even after his death, going so far as managing to take possession of the monastery at Cookham. However, like I said, overall, it was a nightmare for the dynasty. Because in putting all his eggs in one basket, Offa's dynasty collapsed when his only son and heir died unexpectedly and without a child. Further, it doesn't look like he made any friends with his brutal policies, because some of the kingdoms that he brought into his hegemony had broken away. This had been such an unmitigated and abject failure that actually no Anglo-Saxon rulers replicated it, and they ran as far away from his policies as possible. It was so bad that no other Anglo-Saxon ruler even followed off his lead and consecrated the designated heir. And that wasn't a bad idea. It was actually a great idea. But things in Mercia were so awful following Offa. You like that? Well, it was so bad that it looks like the general thinking was that no one wanted to do anything that Offa did, just to be safe. And so, now that almost all the royal family of Mercia was dead... We're told that a distant relative of the royal family, well, actually probably not. Let's see this. We're told that someone who claimed to be a distant relative of the royal family, but almost certainly wasn't, took the throne. His name was Conewolf. Last week, we learned about how this elderman turned king started courting papal influence and distancing himself from the policies of King Offa. One of the things that he wrote to Pope Leo III about was how he didn't approve of the way the Christian community in England was being split up. What he was talking about was how Offa had created the Archbishopric of Lichfield, thus creating a third archbishopric. Conewolf felt that there should only be two archdioceses governing the English kingdoms, just as Pope Gregory the Great had originally wanted. And then he went one step farther, 
And he said that Pope Gregory had originally wanted an Archbishopric of York and an Archbishopric of London, not an Archbishopric of Canterbury. He told the new pope that the reason why Canterbury had gained such prominence was due to the machinations of the English clergy, who wanted the see to be placed at the location where St. Augustine had died. So basically, he was arguing that the see should be moved from Canterbury to London, and that Lichfield should be demoted and reincorporated. And he bolstered that argument by essentially arguing that the current state of affairs wasn't in accordance with the plan laid down by God's representative on earth. It's a pretty strong opening argument, if you ask me. Now, why would Conewolf want this? Well, moving the sea to London is obvious. London was a Mercian territory, so there was an obvious benefit there. But the politics behind getting rid of Litchfield and reuniting the Southern Sea is a bit more tricky. Basically, the argument is that having two seas in the South would mean that he would be answerable to two archbishops which would be politically tricky for him, and also a bit confusing since there wouldn't be a single voice for the church. So not only was it a good way to stress to the papacy that Conewulf was a godly king and looking to carry out the wishes of Gregory the Great, and not only was it a good way to distance himself from the policies of King Offa, who was the guy who set up the Archbishopric of Lichfield, it was also politically rather advantageous because it would avoid the inevitable issues that arise from having too many cooks in the kitchen. There was a problem, though. There was quite the storied history of conflict between Mercia and Canterbury. So right out of the gate, his request to have the sea moved to London looked biased and not on the level. You can imagine Pope Leo reading Conewulf's letter and rolling his eyes a bit at yet another Mercian king complaining about Canterbury. This was probably not helped by the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury was on the lam, thanks to the Kentish Rebellion giving him the heebie-jeebies. And, as far as we can tell, the seat of London, which Conewulf wanted to elevate, well, that was vacant. As in, there wasn't even a bishop over there. It was just a diocese in theory. So, despite the fact that it looks like King Conewulf was right on the facts, and Pope Gregory did in fact want it to just be London and York governing over the English kingdoms, it was still a hard sell to make. Especially when you take into account the decision to split up the diocese was made by the Pope's immediate predecessor with the agreement of the English establishment. Pope Leo would not have become very popular if he immediately started overturning the decisions of Pope Hadrian upon taking office. It would be like J.J. Abrams coming along and saying that the Star Wars prequels were just a fever dream and didn't exist. Well, actually, that's not a good example because everyone would love that decision, but you do know what I mean, right? So unsurprisingly, the Pope denied the request to move the sea to London. Though on the upside, he shelved the issue of Litchfield. So at least it wasn't a total loss. And Conewulf still made a good impression with the Pope. And he had Aethelherd, the fugitive Archbishop of Canterbury, making appeals for assistance. So after this full court press, we're told the Pope threw Conewulf a bone, and he excommunicated his rival, King Aidbert Prane of Kent. That was all the cause King Conewulf needed to march into Kent and depose their king. And then, because Conewulf was a Mercian king, and Mercian kings don't mess around, he poked out King Aidbert's eyes and chopped off his hands before leading him back into Mercia in chains. So, now we have Kent under Mercian control once again. 
and King Adbert Prane was forced to give up his dreams of being a world-class tennis player. So that's roughly where we are in the general political situation we find ourselves in. But since I'm going to be talking about him for a little bit, I should probably explain why Conewolf is important, since you probably hadn't heard his name before you started listening to the BHP. First off, King Conewolf was about as powerful as our friend King Offa. So right there, that makes him quite important. Beyond that, it was Conewolf's dynasty that eventually joined with the House of Wessex, and ostensibly survived into our modern day, philandering nobles notwithstanding. So, while other dynasties that we've been talking about will largely fall into obscurity throughout the centuries, Conewolf's family will live on, tied in a murky way to the line of King Alfred the Great. You can see how that happened on the Heptarchy family tree that we have on the BHP site. What you're looking for is the deep blue and the teal family trees. But the point is that while most other families that we've been talking about over the last couple years will disappear into the mists, Conewolf's family lives on. So that also makes him rather significant. Also, he was quite good at his job. So he's a good example of what an effective Anglo-Saxon leader in the Middle Ages looked like. For an example of this, let's go back to the Kingdom of Kent and the vacancy that had just opened up on the throne. Upon suppressing the Kentish Revolt, which had dominated the first two years of his reign, Conewolf placed his brother, Cuthred on the throne of Kent. And Cuthred was not placed as a mere elderman. He would reign as king. He would even be allowed to mint his own coins in his own name. This further enhanced Conewolf's dynasty, and it had the added benefit of cementing Mercian ties with Kent, while also making the job of keeping the kingdom peaceful the duty of his sibling. This would free Conred to focus on other matters, and also would keep his brother too busy, and presumably too happy with his new title, to plot against him. See? This guy was clever. He was setting his family in good position, all without having to resort to kinslaying. Now, as an interesting side note, some scholars argue that Conewolf was a member of the ousted dynasty of Huissa. If that's true, it's a fascinating turn of events for that royal family, as they managed to survive losing their minor sub-kingdom and had returned to control the most powerful kingdom in the south, and also reign over one of the wealthiest Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Not too shabby. Anyway, so at this point in his reign, so at about 798, Mercia was controlling Sussex, Essex, and Kent. Not quite the dominion that Offa had bequeathed to Egfrith, but still a sizable power block. Unfortunately, the Mercian ties to Northumbria, which had been forged through the marriage of Offa's daughter to King Aethelred of Northumbria, had been lost when the Northumbrian nobles did what they were inevitably going to do and killed King Aethelred. However, there were still ties between Wessex and Mercia through King Beortric's marriage to another one of Offa's daughters. But how much of that prior loyalty would translate to the distant possible relative of Offa's is anybody's guess. So right now, it was just Sussex, Essex, and Kent who were in Conewolf's pocket. But let's leave our island for a brief moment and talk about what was happening in Rome, because it's kind of crazy. The thing is that things were getting kind of difficult for Pope Leo III, and so if he had any plans to reorganize the church in England in accordance with Conewolf's wishes, those plans had to be shelved. 
See, it turns out that Pope Leo wasn't all that popular among the friends and relatives of his predecessor, Pope Adrian. They claimed he was a liar. Specifically, they claimed that he had committed perjury. And also, that he was an adulterer. And I can think of another world leader in recent memory who had those accusations leveled against him. So, on the 25th of April, 799, they enacted a plot to oust him from power. They knew that he would be in public on that day, walking along the streets during the procession of the Greater Litanies. It was the perfect time to strike. And so a group of armed men lay in wait, and as the Pope walked down the predetermined street, they fell upon him. They beat him unconscious, and as a rival force came to rescue the Pope, they were trying to rip out his tongue and gouge out his eyes. Think about that for a second. Set aside that they attacked a holy man, which is shocking all on its own. But here you have an armed mob attack a guy who was about 50 years old, beat him unconscious, and then try to literally tear out his eyes and tongue over nothing more than unproven accusations of perjury and adultery. On retrospect, I guess the Ken Starr hearings weren't all that bad. Anyway, the Pope survived the attack, and he was soon spirited away into exile, and found sanctuary at, you guessed it, the court of Charlemagne. That place was starting to become like the island of misfit toys. But there you have it. Anyway, back in Britain, things were still rather interesting for Cornwall. You might have noticed that when I listed the kingdoms that were under Cornwall's control, I didn't include East Anglia, despite the fact that Offed brought them under his dominion towards the end of his reign. And that's because East Anglia was minting its own coins, under their king, Aidwald. As you might remember from earlier episodes, that's a pretty clear indication that they were starting to assert their independence from mercy and control. And as many scholars have noted, we have no reason to believe that Conewulf would have ignored an East Anglian rebellion and only focused his attention upon the Kentish rebellion. So, while our written sources are silent on the matter, it is entirely likely that the Mercian war bands were active and seeking to regain their hegemonic power over their eastern neighbor, much like what happened in Kent. And that would explain why Aidwald vanished shortly after he appeared, right along with his coins. And, only a few years later, East Anglian coins were being minted in Conewulf's name. Something clearly went down in East Anglia. But East Anglia wasn't Conewulf's only problem in the waning years of the 8th century. It looks like there was also some degree of tension, or perhaps even outright violence, between Mercia and Wessex. The peace that had existed between the two kingdoms when the line of Offa held the throne was apparently lost, and King Bjortric didn't appear to feel like he owed any fealty to this new king of Mercia. So in addition to fighting with Kent, and probably fighting with East Anglia, the Mercian warbands might also have had to march on Wessex during the first several years of King Conewulf's reign. And I say that because we read of how in 799, King Conewulf made a peace treaty with the West Saxons. That's usually not the sort of thing you do when you're already really close and friendly with a kingdom. So my guess is something must have happened. Though, it's also clear that King Conewulf was overcoming these challenges handily. And it looks like he was starting to realize the degree of power that he was wielding in southern Britain. He wasn't just a king. 
He was a king of kings. And it seems that he knew that, because in a charter from that same year, Conewulf referred to himself as an emperor. This was the first time that a Western ruler referred to himself as an emperor in an official record since the days of the Roman Empire. Ballsy. And King Conewulf, I guess I should say Emperor Conewulf, was doing really well for himself. He had reestablished control over Kent and East Anglia, had peace with Wessex, and he was also pretty damn wealthy. The thing is that Conewulf had his eyes on the prize. He wanted his family to do well. So rather than employing liberal amounts of kinslaying, Conewulf looked to the regions outside of central Mercia as a way to enrich his family. For example, he plundered and exploited the richest territory of the Huissa, the Shire of Winchcombe, which was the domain of the Huissa royal dynasty until very recently, which might have been his own dynasty if some scholars are right about his background. He also sought to secure his position in the region by gaining a papal privilege to establish a monastery there, which he could bequeath to his own heirs, so the land would stay within his own family. So money... Positions in the church, friends in the papacy, and a brother on the throne of a nearby kingdom. This is how you do it. Though, not everyone was a fan. Alcuin really wasn't sure what to make of Conewulf. Well, that's not fair. He knew exactly what to make of him. And it wasn't good. Alcuin viewed him as a tyrant. And he wrote to him about how he hoped the Mercian king would try to emulate the good aspects of King Offa, and not the baser ones. What he was saying was that he wished that Conewulf would live a monogamous life in matrimony, like Offa did. But that unlike Offa, he would be a bit less expansionist and violent. The trouble, though, was that Conewulf was a Mercian king. Expansionism and violence were part of the job description. And as for matrimony, well, it turns out that Conewulf set aside his wife and took another which is actually what one of Conewulf's potential ancestors, Chenwal, did, and it's why Penda went to war against him. So, maybe it was in the blood. It's hard to say, because the specifics of his rule aren't overly detailed. My guess is that he probably remarried for political reasons, since who you're married to was as important as who your parents were in Mercian politics. But, that is just a guess. We're also not sure exactly when he set aside his wife, or really anything about her. It's all a mystery. What we do know is that he had a son by this point, so 799, and the son was about 13 years old. His name was Chinahelm. We see him listed on a charter from that year, and he was also referenced in a letter from the Pope the previous year, so there's a good chance that Conewulf had set aside the mother of his children. But again, we don't really know much about what was going on, other than the fact that Alcuin really didn't like him. But frankly, it looks like he was just being an Anglo-Saxon king. And one that was really good at his job. So that's what's going on in Mercia. Meanwhile, Northumbria was off doing its own thing. Erdwulf, that elder man who was put to death by King Aethelred but somehow survived, well, he was ruling over the kingdom, and it was King Aethelred who was dead. Snap. Now, King Erdwulf was no fool. He knew what he was, namely, a king of Northumbria. And he had already survived one execution, according to some records, thanks to some chanting and a chilly night outside a tent. Anglo-Saxon records are weird that way. 
and he probably realized that he wasn't going to get another freebie like that. Moreover, he was up to his eyeballs with problems. At the top of the list was the fact that he and the Archbishop of York were at odds. It seems that there was a conflict regarding some land seizures that got out of hand, and now the Archbishop was offering sanctuary to King Erdwolf's rivals. That was a pretty big issue for the king, considering that this was Northumbria, and those rivals were probably sharpening their knives. So that probably made the Archbishop numero uno on King Erdwolf's assassination wish list. But the thing is, the Archbishop of York was no fool either. And so he suddenly became rather well known for traveling around with a large retinue of, quote, low-born soldiers, end quote. The dude had an army. So, in addition to Erdwolf having rival Aethlings who were undoubtedly conspiring against him, this was Northumbria after all, he also had the Archbishop offering them protection, and that same Archbishop was marching freely around his kingdom with a damn army. And not to miss out on the party, down south King Conewolf of Mercia got in on the action, and was giving other rivals of Erdwolf's sanctuary in his court as well, like he was Charlemagne or something. So this was a mess. The vultures were circling. And then something surprising happened. And this is a complex bit of intrigue, so I'll break it down for you as best as I can, but it might get a little confusing. You might remember that 26 years ago, King Alred of Northumbria was exiled, along with his son Almond. And King Aethelred took the throne. The same King Aethelred who tried to kill the current King Erdwolf and then ended up dead himself. Well, Almond, that's old King Alred's son, apparently hadn't forgotten that Northumbria was his birthright. Not only that, but some scholars argue that King Conewulf was sheltering him, and might have even been encouraging him to retake the northern throne, perhaps even providing military support. And it looks like Almond might have made an attempt, because somehow, in the year 800, he was back in Northumbria. And it sounds like he might have arrived with a warband, but honestly, as usual, there are no specifics regarding exactly what was going on there. But if he was, it didn't go well, because we're told that he was killed by King Erdwolf's men. And the murder of Almond was not appreciated by the people in the Mercian territory of Derby, where he was immediately regarded as a martyr, and a cult was formed venerating him. That's crazy, right? The exiled son of a Northumbrian king returned to Northumbria and was killed, and he immediately was venerated as a martyr in Mercia. Mercia, who have hated Northumbria for generations. Now this could be a weird coincidence, but it really does look like Mercia had to have been involved in some way in Almond's failed return to Northumbria. Conewulf was pretty clearly looking not just to maintain the Imperium built by Offa, but rather to expand it. If he could expand his power north of the Humber, he could effectively become the first king of England. Looking at the evidence, I suspect he really was working on earning the title of Emperor. But across the channel, someone else was also seeking that title. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all of it. And you can find links to all of that stuff at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening.